From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and Sirius XM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Sam Polk was a senior Wall Street trader who ditched it all and then went on to found organizations that help bring healthy food to poor communities in Los Angeles. Those organizations are called Grocery Ships and Every Table. His powerful book, which is called For the Love of Money, chronicles his struggle to overcome what he refers to as his addiction to wealth. This podcast episode combines two conversations I've had with Sam on the air. The first was when he published a New York Times op-ed piece a couple of years ago, and the second is a recent update on what's happened since. We talk about Sam's insider take on the culture of Wall Street, the pressures he felt from his father and from our society that led him to his wealth addiction, how he overcame it, and the great work Sam is now doing in Los Angeles with grocery ships and every table. I hope you'll enjoy this episode of Work and Life. Sam, welcome to Work and Life, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Stu. It's, uh, it's good to be here. You know, as, as I think you know, I, I uh, learned about you when you wrote the much-talked-about opinion piece in the New York Times a, a couple of years ago. I want to talk with you about how that led you to your great new book, For the Love of Money. Your story is such a compelling uh, example of someone who's able, really through this crucible of, of really painful experience, to find a way to live a truly integrated life. So I talked about how I went to Wall Street um, when I was 22. I had a summer internship at CSFB, and you know, and you know, I, I remember walking onto the trading floor and just being blown away. I mean, you know, Wall Street was sort of everything that I could have ever wanted out of a life. And so I was, uh, I worked at CSFB, and then I got a full-time job at Bank of America. Hey, let me, let me just jump in here, Sam. Yeah. Everything that you wanted in life was right there on the trading floor. Really? Yeah. I, I mean. You know, certainly for that sort of 22-year-old kid, um, mm. you know, my my dad was this guy who um, sort of believed, you know, we, we sort of grew up sort of lower middle class, and he was always sort of reading the paper and talking about, you know, billionaires and people that were really successful, and he wasn't successful, but he wanted to be successful so bad. And so I grew up sort of with that huge desire in my heart, and or in my head, rather. Mm -hmm. and, and I remember walking onto that trading floor, and, like, we had, you know, we moved up to a sort of a nice area of town for high school, so I'd been around, like, some wealth in my life. Mm -hmm. And I remember walking out onto that trading floor and just seeing people who, just by looking at them and the kind of clothes they wore and the, you know, pants they wore and the kind of haircuts and what their sort of skin looked like, you could just tell they played golf a lot. And <laughs> it was just, like, a different level of mm. wealth than I'd ever seen. 
And so for me, yeah, I was like a kid about to graduate from Columbia, terrified about sort of finding my place in the world and really, you know, terrified about where I was going to end up and, you know, was I going to be important and was I going to matter? And to me, those guys on Wall Street looked like they mattered. Mm. Because they had all the, the external uh, trappings or the, the, the indications of, of what, what, wealth? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a funny thing. It's like, I think you're sort of like pointing or at least, you know, asking questions around this really interesting issue, which is, one of the results of that New York Times piece I wrote is that I got hundreds of letters from college kids. Hmm. And, you know, most of them were in some way or another sort of asking me if I could help them get onto Wall Street. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, but, they, but I really understood where they were coming from because they were taught, you know, they sort of like they knew they didn't come out and directly ask it sometimes because I had wrote, written a story that was sort of, you know, about leaving Wall Street for this and that reason. And that inspired kids to write to you and say, how do I get a job on Wall Street? Well, that's what I'm trying to get at is that like, yeah, they did that. But then they also like they also like opened up about sort of what it felt like to be a college kid. And I mean, you know, you know, we think that these kids that go to school where you teach, you know, Wharton or Columbia or Harvard, that they sort of like have it all made, right? And in some sense, they really do. But they're also sort of stepping out into adulthood, into a culture that has told them from birth that really the only way to sort of be valuable in the world is to be rich, powerful, or famous. Mm-hmm. And they're none of those at that time. And so I remember for me, you know, I was terrified when I was about to graduate. I was terrified, you know, Columbia was this sort of badge of honor and prestige. And I was like, you know, God, you know, where am I going to go? Am I going to just sort of disappear into the world? And then here comes Credit Suisse First Boston or Goldman Sachs. And they say, here, you have an equally prestigious brand name. And you know, you're on this path that, you know, our culture sort of celebrates and then vilifies, you know. Um, well, not so much vilifies, though, when you were getting into it, right? When did you graduate from Columbia? Yeah, it was 2002 was my first internship. So okay, right so... the internet bubble burst. But in 2002, though, it was still... There wasn't that much vilification, or was there? Uh, no, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think that we've always, you know, as a, you know, Western culture or a you know, post-BC culture, we've always had this thing about money lenders and, you know, people, you know, Scrooge, and there is this sort of, like, backdrop of, like, hey, don't, money's not going to make you happy. But that maybe, in my mind, takes up, like, 3% of the sort of cultural dialogue, and the 97% is all about, oh, my God, get money as fast as you can and as much as possible, and, by the way, Wall Street is the place to do that. Right. So pretty much I, you know, continued up the Wall Street ladder years and years of working really hard and becoming a trader and then a hedge fund trader. And I started to make real money and sort of live that life that I'd sort of dreamed of. So, you know, I would fly into the airport and there'd be a black car waiting for me and I could go to any restaurant I wanted. I went to so many World Series games on brokers, you know, credit cards. Really? Um, yeah. I mean, like, it was just like, you know, I could go All those Yankee games? Yankee games, Knicks games, you mm. know, I could be second row at the Knicks sort of whenever I wanted. Um, mm. You know, it was like there was, and, and for, you know, remember I was a you know, 25, 26-year-old kid, and so that was a tremendous feeling of power in the world. And you did all that without breaking the law? Uh, yeah, I think we 99% <laughs> broke, didn't break the law. Right. There were some things like, 
I remember once we flew out to Vegas on a broker's dime, and I, I, heard, I remember noticing that our seats, we went to see the De La Hoy Mary Mayweather fight, and I remember our seats were better than Sasha Baron Cohn's seats. And I remember seeing him and being like, oh, wow. And then I asked somebody how much these tickets were, and they were like, oh, these are $5,000 a pop. Mm. And I was like, that can't, that, that may not be legal. <laughs> No. <laughs> right. All right. So that's a relatively minor transgression, probably. Yeah, uh, probably. I, but yeah, it was all it was all totally above board. So you're living the life, the dream. I'm living the life, and then and the thing that I started to notice was like, look, you know, there is no doubt that sort of making money, getting a million dollar bonus, feels good. And you go home that night, and you you know show your girlfriend, I am proud of this. Look at this, you know. But then I also noticed at the same time that the higher I went, it wasn't like the, the, the sort of jealousy and envy that sort of had motivated me in my life. And I mean that like those college kids that write to me, they're looking at these sort of people they read in the paper, Lloyd Blankfein and, JP and Jamie Dimon, and they're saying, you know, God, I want to be that. And that's how I felt too. You know, I'd see really rich people or I'd read an article about a trader or a billionaire in the paper and I'd be like, I just be swarmed with envy as an aside it makes me wonder like how many readers of like us magazine and forbes and bloomberg just read those and just like just feel envy the whole time they're reading it you know mm. and i would feel like that and even as i continue to make millions I, I still noticed that i felt like that and i and i started to say like you know there's something wrong there um and then you know sort of going back to what you were talking about like you know, trading was like, to me, as like a 22-year-old, it looked like the coolest thing in the world. And it was so much fun, you know, like making big bets and seeing, you know, news headlines that all of a sudden made you a million dollars. And it was really exciting. But over time, I started to sort of like separate from actually what I was doing and be like, you know, sort of just be like, this, this stuff that I'm doing every day doesn't matter, and there's mm. nothing sort of valuable about it, even though I'm getting very well compensated for it. You, did you say something valuable or value-less? Yeah, yeah. There, there's not something valuable not. about it. So yeah. was there a moment where something clicked, or did it just kind of build up over time that you realized there's something wrong here? You know, there there were so many moments. I mean, one I talked about in the Times piece was this moment where my billionaire boss was saying... I was in a meeting, and this was in '09, so it was like in the worst part of the crash, and we yep. were talking about the new hedge fund regulations being made by Congress. And by the way, our hedge fund was up money during that time, so everybody else was losing money, and we were making money. And I remember I was in a meeting, and we were talking about the new hedge fund regulations, and I, and everybody thought they were a bad idea, but I was sort of in the midst of this crisis where I was sort of seeing the sort of greed that was in me, but also this system that I was a part of, this sort of financial system that had in some sense caused some of this collapse, and then to my mind sort of wasn't taking accountability for it. And I kind of puffed in my chest and said, you know, well, isn't this better for the system as a whole? And my boss just shot me this sort of withering glare and said, I don't have the brain capacity to think about the system as a whole. I can only think about what's good for us and our company. That's what your boss said. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it wasn't so much, I mean, maybe I judged him, but more than anything, like, I judged myself, you know, and I was like, I was like, God, you know, there's got to be more to this than, you know, my dream my whole life had been to be a billionaire, 
and I saw this guy, and, you know, I'm not saying all billionaires are like this guy or whatever, anything like that, but, mm-hmm. like, you know, I would have... The fact that he was a billionaire, to me, in my mind, billionaire was like hero, you know, or has it made. And the fact that he was still sort of self-seeking, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. made me say, like, made me just realize in my, that in that moment, you know, there is no end point. There's no, at least for most of us, or at least for me, there's no moment where you say, oh, I've got enough, I'm done, let me go do, you know, what I was meant to do. And a lot of these kids that wrote me, these college kids, would say that. You know, one kid wrote me in particular, I remember he was like, Sam, I just want enough money to travel and take mm-hmm. care of my parents, take care of my wife, and I want to go to Wall Street, and the number I have in my mind is $6 million. Mm-hmm. And I was like, first of all, I was like, I have way less than $6 million, FYI. And B, 99% of the world has less than $6 million. And really, like, maybe maybe that's true, that you would be the one guy who, if you got to $6 million, if you spent your 20 years, then you would stop. But for most of us, and at least most of my friends on Wall Street, what it looked like from my eyes is that they got that $6 million, and then they wanted twelve, and, and, and then they wanted eighteen, And so they had nicer houses and nicer cars. The habit had been built. It didn't stop. Yeah, they still had that hole sort of inside, and that's, you know, that we were all sort of trying to fill Mm. with money, power, prestige. My sort of belief, okay, and this is just me personally, but is that, you know, I was trying to fill this, this, I I would call this hole inside me, I would call it like a, and this is not how I thought consciously about it, but it's how I've come to think about it, is this sort of sense of worthlessness. And the only way that I sort of thought I was valuable was Columbia, um, making a million dollars on Wall Street, having a big loft apartment on Bond Street in, in downtown New York. Mm-hmm. And, and those things that, you know, that you get when you're on Wall Street. And after a while, I just sort of realized that that hole was still there no matter how much money I was trying to fill it with. Mm. And I said, you know, like, I started to really do some work and say, like, you know, we have this really brief life, and and not to get all philosophical, but we have this... No, really, let's get all philosophical, Sam. And we have this really brief life, and the sort of, if you play out the Wall Street story all the way, what you end up at with is, like, a guy who maybe has $100 million, and the world thinks he's successful, and he's you know, in the papers, and he's got all this stuff, but in the end, he's just spent his entire life trying to aggregate both money and, you know, accolades for himself. And and I think that's, I really do believe, that's why I feel like a lot of compassion for these college kids is because I believe that's what our culture tells us to do. Like, I believe, like, we all hear about Jesus, and we all hear about Mother Teresa, but really, the culture says, you are important if you go and start your tech company and make and turn it into a billion dollars. And so you go out and try to do that. And in the end, even if you're successful, I believe you sort of haven't done anything. And that was sort of the thing for me, which was like, you know, I used to, I I still talk to this spiritual teacher who has been, you know, who I'm more grateful for than anybody I could ever imagine. And she used to say things to me like, oh yeah, those billionaires, they don't, they don't mean anything. Hmm. Or it, it, she would say it like as if they weren't successful. And to me, that was her- heresy. <laughs> heresy. Mm-hmm, and I'd mm-hmm. be like, no, 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 they're a billionaire. You don't understand. These are important, powerful people. But to her, 
They weren't. Wait, so you sought out uh, the the advice and counsel of a spiritual guide at some yeah, point I mean, along your path here to 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 awareness, to greater awareness of, of what was wrong? Yeah, I mean, it was it, actually in, right in the beginning, and that's the thing, you know, you ask if this is like a moment that happened, but really, you know, three weeks into that first internship at Credit Suisse First Boston, I was dating, I was dating this girl, in love with this girl, and we'd been together for two years, and three weeks into my internship, she dumped me. And I was so, I mean, you know, I kind of Wait, so you had been dating her before you began this internship? Before yeah, I was dating her at Columbia. Oh, okay. Um, and, and I was dating her, and she dumped me. And it was like, it was one of those sort of like first love, didn't see it coming, devastating heartbreaks. And, you know, I look, I've been through some pain in my life, but I tell you, breakup pain is right up there. Mm-hmm. And I was so devastated that I... I could barely sort of do anything. I could barely eat. I could barely get out of bed in the morning. Um, and this, this, so you were depressed, it sounds yes, like. I was, I was immediately depressed. But I had this internship that was the most important thing in the world to me, aside from this girlfriend. And so I... <laughs> ah, up, so yeah. which, which was more important? Yeah, well, I mean, it, I'm glad that the internship was so important because it, it allowed me yeah. to sort of, I guess, humble myself enough to call this woman... Uh-huh who I'd met uh, a, a couple years before when that same girlfriend had took us to couples counseling. Ah. And she was, um, she was this Native American spiritual teacher. And when I'd gone the first time, I thought, I thought, okay, first of all, she's not a PhD in psychology. She's not a psychiatrist. There's no Ivy League degree on her wall. No thank you. And, but then two years later, she was the only sort of counselor I knew. Mm-hmm. And so I called her, and I started working with her every week. Um, and by the way, every week from then until now. And I still talk to her. In fact, now, right now, I talk to her twice a week. Huh. And, and, the, and, and what she sort of, she sort of was talking to me into my ear. She was almost whispering, you know, a completely different perspective on the world, which was, you know, Wall Street was all about a hierarchy, right? And I believe that our culture is about a hierarchy that says, you know, the more money you make and the more famous you are and the bigger the tech company is that you started, the more valuable and important you are. And so that's what we're all on this, or at least I was, on this sort of chase to get up to the top of that. And that's what these college kids who are writing me are in the beginning stages of their attempt to meet the hierarchy. And she would say the opposite. She would say, no, 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 there is no hierarchy. Everybody is equally valuable. Um, what you think of as like the way the world works is actually just how your sort of culture sees it. But Native American culture saw it totally differently. And they saw it that everybody was equally valuable and that the focus, the sort of value of a life was in the sort of inner character that you cultivated as opposed to your outside achievements and how you treated the love and empathy and compassion you treated people with as opposed to what's on your business card. And, you know, frankly, I thought she was a wacko, you know, Um, and I was like, you know, I was 22 and I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But just tell me how I can get over this breakup so I can get on to my billion dollar quest. Yeah. But, you know, by the time I left so that I was on Wall Street for eight years and I'd say, you know, the first year I sort of believed her about 10 percent and Wall Street 90 percent. And then halfway through, I believed her about 40 percent and Wall Street 60 percent. But then toward the end, I started to actually think, hey, you know what, maybe she's right, you know? And that's when I started to, like, 
you know, sort of understand. It was it was almost like a moment like in The Matrix where, you know, he takes the red pill and he comes to see the truth of the world that he's in. <laughs> You know, and in some sense, that's what happened to me. I would just hear these conversations that I would that I had heard a hundred times before about, you know, on Wall Street, you refer to people, you know, by literally by the size of their bank account. So you, you, somebody would say, hey, that guy over there, he's a twenty five million dollar guy. Hmm. Or they'd say that guy over there, he's a hundred millionaire. And it wouldn't be it just occurred to me that this wasn't about, you know, how much money they had. So what they could do with that money it was just how much money they had as a as a signifier of their value as a human being. You are listening to the Work and Life podcast. This is Stu Friedman, your host, and I've been speaking with Sam Polk about his career on Wall Street, the expensive restaurants, big sporting events, multi-million dollar bonuses, pursuing the dreams of his father and and how he became disillusioned with the extreme wealth and left Wall Street. What we speak about in the next part of the show is uh, what happened next and, and how he uh, then moved from Wall Street to change his work life entirely. We're going to talk about the two organizations Sam founded to provide nutritious food to underserved communities in Los Angeles. That's coming up next. Well, so I left Wall Street when I was 30, which was, you know, till then, you know, well, probably the hardest thing that I'd ever done. And it was like, you know, I literally just resigned. And my boss, you know, I sort of manufactured a reason to argue with my boss. But in the end, as I was leaving, he was like, I'm sorry you're leaving. I think you could have made a lot of money here. Hmm. And, you know, that was like a harpoon in my heart, you know, because I really was like walking away right at the height of my sort of earning capacity. Um, but it's, I thought you had already been making a lot of money. So this is how I'll tell you I'll tell you what I made, and this is just bonuses I think if I remember correctly. But my first year I, I think I had seven years of bonuses or something like that. So it was like forty thousand, seventy-five thousand, one hundred twenty-five thousand, five hundred thousand, a million, a million and a half, and then three point seven five million. And imagine that on a graph. Our engineer is okay. weeping now as you're speaking. I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, yeah. but continue, I know, please. I know. And, and, and imagine that. But just so you know, about that $3.75 million, I had to give back half of it because that was part of the deal with the, with the hedge fund is that if you left at any time during that year, you had to give back half your last year's bonus. Ouch. So you, you had to give up almost $2 million bucks to walk away? That's right. Um, and, you know, ahead of me was like, by the way, my boss, my, so there was billionaires and then there was a head of trading and then there was me. I was a senior trader. And as I was leaving, the head of trading resigned. So I was at least in contention to be head of trade. And I don't say that for my own ego, but just to say that, like, that was I still a... sometimes chuckle about, like, there was a lot of million, million, multi-million dollar bonuses in the future sort of stretching out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was really hard, you know, both for me in general, because I'd been so focused on making money my whole life, um, but also because it really was like walking away from, you know, the beliefs of a culture, you know, and like, you know, there was a lot of people that I talked to during that time who didn't agree with that decision. Um, uh, and a lot still don't. I have to ask you, Sam, is your father still around? My dad's still around. Um, and so... I don't, uh, he would not have agreed with that decision, uh, although him and I don't talk very often these days. I but see. 
I didn't see, seek his counsel. I see. I see. Yeah, because from what you were saying earlier, uh, it seemed like this would be hard for him to grasp. It would be hard for him to grasp. That's right. But in in a lot of ways, you know, that's sort of what this was about. You know, I mm. mean, we, you know, we talk about like where that sense of worthlessness comes from. Um, and for me, you know, a lot of it came from my dad. You know, my dad was this guy who was, um, you know, focused on money and focused on himself and his sort of extracurricular activities and not so much focused on me. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. And so, you know, it was, you know, and he also had this, like, temper, you know. And so mm-hmm. my sort of experience growing up with my father was this experience of not being his focus and also becoming more and more desperate to impress him. And that's the thing that, like, you know, I hope to convey a little bit in my article and, and also this book that I've written, which is that, like, you know, for from my bosses and Wall Street were my dad in so many ways, you know. I went from being a teenager trying to impress my dad from wrestling, you know, winning tournament wrestling tournaments mm-hmm. to a 25-year-old trying to impress my boss mm-hmm. by making a, you know, $10 million all-tell trade. Mm-hmm. I spoke with Sam more recently about grocery ships and every table, and that conversation follows next. Okay, you've propelled yourself out of this orbit of uh, the soul-deadening work that had been, you know, your your life's dream, uh, and and you, you you created something new. So tell us briefly how you got from there to there. Yeah, so about three years after I left, I really hadn't done anything but started writing until then. I became aware of this intersection that exists between poverty and obesity, and. What what I mean is that, you know, for example, in South Los Angeles, uh, per capita income is $13,000 a year, and life expectancy is 10 years lower than more affluent areas, and there's a lot of reasons for that, but it definitely includes the fact that South LA is a food desert, which means that there's Mm -hmm. no fresh produce for sale, but tons and tons of fast food. Mm -hmm. And I was so sort of inspired by this idea that healthy food is a human right that every person and certainly every parent should be able to afford to put on the table for their kids and have access to. Um, So the first thing we did was I started a nonprofit called Grocery Ships that basically helps parents living in food deserts get themselves and their families healthy. And it's a a six-month program that includes nutrition education and healthy cooking skills and um, uh, fresh produce each week, and it's done in the context of a support group. So instead of like a didactic lecture, it's actually led by uh, people from the community, and a lot of time is given mm-hmm. to talking about the other issues that are deeply wrapped up with eating that include addiction and family issues and trauma issues. Um, so that's uh, not grocery ships, and it's this incredible nonprofit that is, you know, this year we'll do 30 groups with 300 moms, and I'm very proud of that. Um, but about two years ago, in fact, another finance guy, a former private equity guy, um, came to work. He, he went to a grocery ships graduation and was so inspired, he started volunteering and then came to work with us full time. And him and I were sitting in this office in South L.A. and kept hearing these moms say, hey, look, you know, there's 
you know, I'm a single mom, I've got four kids and two jobs, and this produce is great, but I, I need to eat on the go, and in this neighborhood, that means McDonald's. Mm-hmm. And we started putting our minds together to figure out a business that would allow us to provide healthy meals that were affordable to these moms in South L.A. And mm-hmm. what we came up with is this business, this social enterprise called Every Table. And how it works really quickly yes. is that there's a commissary kitchen producing a large amount of healthy, delicious meals. And then at that commissary kitchen, these meals are packaged in grab-and-go containers. And that mm-hmm. really is the key economic insight of it all, um, which is that in, um, in, in, a, you know, you walk into like a fast food place and there's 2,500 square feet of space and 10 to 15 employees and a, you know, fully built out kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, all of which is why, um, uh, you know, those places will never sell really inexpensive food. But for us, we open instead a network of small footprint stores that don't have a kitchen, just sell grab-and-go food. And because of that, we have this incredibly low cost structure. Mm -hmm. But we then go even farther and implement a variable pricing structure where um, in in poorer communities, we sell the food for lower prices than in the higher-income communities. So our average price in lower income is about $4, and then in the higher-income places, about $8. Wow. So you can... uh you can adjust your your pricing according to the local uh, environment, and how does that help you and, and sustain your business model? Well, what it allows us to do is be competitive in every market, and for us, you know, we focus on the total margins of the business, but we don't have to focus on the same margin from each customer. So every store is individually profitable, but differently profitable. Sam, we are unfortunately out of time here, but in the last 30 seconds, what's, what's the big idea that you want to leave our listeners with? I think the big idea is that success has to be redefined to include making an intentional contribution into the world. Mm-hmm. That is a powerful message. It is, uh, it is an important one for people to hear, and your, your inspiring story is, uh, is, is so instructive in, in uh, letting people see how it's possible. So thank you so much for sharing it with us on this show, for writing about it in your great new book. It's called For the Love of Money. You can check out the book and his website at sampolk.me. You can follow him on Twitter at Sam Polk. That's S-A-M-P-O-L-K. Sam, is there somewhere else that you'd like to direct our listeners for more information? Yeah, please go to www.everytable.com. Everytable.com. Sam Polk, thank you so much for joining us on Work and Life. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sam Polk. Sam found a way to act with integrity by creating a greater sense of coherence among the different parts of his life after feeling intense dissonance. And he got help in taking these steps from a spiritual guide. You know, everyone needs someone to talk to, whether it's a friend, a family member, a coach, a mental health professional, a religious teacher, anyone you trust, really, about what matters most and how to make changes to better align what you do with what you care about. Sam's current work is personally meaningful in part because he and his family struggled with obesity during Sam's childhood. 
Now, he provides nutritious food and health education to families in need. This is a great example of someone taking his personal experience and converting it into uh, work to action that is of value to other people. A real leader. I hope you found his story to be instructive, if not inspiring, as I find it, as you pursue harmony between work and the rest of your life. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio Powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by commenting there or tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership. Be a better leader, have a richer life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.